0: Westmount let us just continue that cry of worship uh, taking the copy that you have of God's Word in your hand and we're going to open it up if you're visiting with us and don't have a copy in front of you you'll see one in the racks uh, just look straight ahead and down you'll see one there you can follow along with us and to begin this morning I'm gonna have you turn to Matthew 19 Matthew 19 to start We're only going to be there briefly, so I'm going to read the main text that we will be in, and then I'm going to pray for our morning together. So you can turn there, but hear the words as you're turning to Matthew 19 of Genesis 2.24. We've said them repeatedly this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that we can celebrate the gift of the institution of marital union that you've given to us. And Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear as we learn and continue to learn about it, not just in picture, but in word. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and live out, Father, all to your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, indeed, a marriage is on the mind, of course, right? At Westmount this weekend, Uh, two in our midst, two that are here this morning, covenanted together and became one flesh. Of course, the evidence is still here around us, lots of evidence of an incredible day yesterday. Well, what does that mean that two became one flesh? You probably heard that. A bit yesterday, you've heard that term before. What does that mean, The two became one flesh? Well, let's begin and say what it doesn't mean. That's one of the mechanisms we use. I pray it's helpful for us here as we learn at Westbound. What does it not mean? It does not mean that two people decided now to live together, right? That's not what it means. You know what? Let, let's live together. That's sensible, and that makes sense. It does not mean a partnership that they hope goes well, and you know what, we get some tax breaks with that. Let's do that. It does not mean they added someone to their life. How am I going to make my life better? Well, let me get married. Marriage brings lots of blessings, and we're going to talk about that. That's not the motivation to be married. Those shallow and modern and self-centered desires for marriage Our standard today, and is it no surprise, like a wading pool, when you wade into marriage and it's ankle deep, it's fairly easy to wade out of marriage, isn't it? If you only go shallow deep, it's easy to get out, always with one hand on the ribcord. I hope this works out. I hope we're married for life, so we say. All of it a reflection of the very, very low view of marriage that permeates the institution today. And beloved, this is cancer. It has spread so much. Can I tell you this morning, in light of this weekend, we are just so used to it, all of us. The low view of marriage. We may claim higher views of marriage, but it's seeping through our pores. For sure, we would not expect those rejecting God to embrace his marital definition. You say, yeah, Jason, they, they don't get it. No, I have nothing to do to talk about them, whoever they are. No, the we in view is God's people right here that have the book, the word, and the truth. That's who's in view. And that's why Ephesians 4 says we come together to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Is that not true? Thus, we should know better. Yet we forsake the book and choose our way. I'll give you a case in point. Not too long ago, I heard of one being taught a clear biblical view of marriage from the word of God. And you know what the response was? I see that, but it's not practical. Did you catch that? I see the truth, but how do you live it? So I can't live it because it's not practical. And there it is. God's people now rejecting God's definition of marriage, listen, because they cannot understand how people can put that into practice for life. And that's our plight. It's no different, look down at Matthew 19, of course, to the protest of the first disciples. This is nothing new. When Creator and Creator come down here in the Gospels, opens His mouth and defines and course-corrects what marriage is, remember the gripe in Matthew 19, After Jesus taught them the truth of marriage, look at Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case, and look at the context, with marriage that is permanent, right? And people do not leave each other. If such is the case, say the exasperated disciples, then here's what they reckon. It's better not to marry. Did you see that? Yes, at least those disciples began to understand the truth and the implication. Do you see that? Well, if this is true, Messiah, what you're saying about marital union, who would marry? It's not practical, right? Lifelong, no way out. It's not practical. If marriage is permanent, if there's no breaking the bond, if it is for life, if there are no rip cords, no out clauses, no legalities, no I'm dones, then who can be married, right? The married among us, we would say, yeah, we understand a bit of that. Who can be married? So we turn to our newlywed couple, Tyler and Veda, and what do we say? Tyler and Veda, you know, yesterday was lovely, right? But it's gone now. And I'm sorry to say the honeymoon's going to be over, right? Oh, those two sweet young ones, that was a great day, but just wait till life hits them. Wait wait until your first fight, Tyler and Veda. Wait till the bills come in. Wait till living together beats you up figuratively. You just wait. It's all smiles and bells and whistles on wedding day, but you just wait. Or how about this? Wait till they fall out of love. Oh, they're so in love now. Wait till they fall out of love. Whatever that means. Or how about this one? Wait until one of them wakes up and says, it's not you, it's me. Or how about this one? At the end of a rope, whatever that rope would be, we tried. You know what, Westmount? We tried. We know it was a lot of effort, and that, but we tried. And you just don't understand. I know what the Bible says, but you know what? We tried, and God understands. You know what's amazing when you think about those Canaanite pearls of wisdom, right? On what marriage is. Not only are they unbiblical, but you know what they betray? The sovereignty of God. God called us together. God ordained this. We just didn't know at the time he'd tell us to wait out of marriage as well, too. It betrays God. We get out of marriage so quickly. And what's not so surprising, but we need reminding of today, is that drift. By the way, we'd call it an accelerated drift, a tsunami. That is a departure that has led to absolute marital destruction. I don't even need a response to that. You know it's true, is it not? Marriage is destroyed today. It's destroyed. And we need to be reminded, Westmount, how modern this biblical destruction is up until... Reading again this week, you guys know this, up until a 100 years ago, one century, that's it, up until, let's say, 1900, people understood that the desire to be married meant that they entered a lifelong union. That was undisputed up until 1900. Did you know that? It's lifelong. They barely knew the D word one in which there was no exiting until death. It was just understood. Up until the early 20th century, people generally stayed in marriages would have been an understatement. People were still people, of course. Sin was still sin. And marriages were still good and bad, of course. But people and even public policy, this is one, even public policy understood that marriage was permanent. And you can look it up. There's all kinds of laws. That existed because of it. No leaving, no try again, no take two, nothing at all of the sort. That didn't, it wasn't in the lifeblood of society. Because commonly it was understood that breaking the union would be wrong. And in fact, breaking the union is not what marriage is. Let me give you one more example of how far we've come in so short a time. One century is one thing. 50 years ago, 50 years. Years ago, you would think Big Bad California would move closer, but Big Bad California 50 years ago jumped on the global bandwagon to recognize no-fault divorce. 50 years ago. you say, wow, I thought it would be much later than that. 55 decades ago. So 51 years ago, California had it right. And Canada, what about our country? Get this, as much as the trouble we're in, lots of people talking about Canada these days, Canada held the line till 1986. You do the math and need help like I do, that's a mere 37 years ago. 37 years ago, and you know what it's like, or what it's been like since then. Here it is, beloved, people looking for a way out of marriage, a way to get out of marriage rather than a way to stay in it. And let me tell you something, that is the acceleration today. When People show up on our shores often, sadly, looking for counseling and help. I hate to say this, most often they want the way out. They don't want the way to stay in. It's just the reality. Yes, when the going gets tough, spouses don't want to be burdened with morality or legality or anything about commitment or covenant, We've literally seen people sit in chairs where the Bible is just getting in the way. Oh, don't come to me with the Bible. This marriage is hard. It's because of our declining view of marriage. Spouses today and since the fall, as we'll see later, just want a way out. It is the amplified, I'm done. And here it is. It's an amplified, I'm done. I don't care what anyone says or what God says. We've heard that. I'm done. And for sure, we don't call for a temporary marriage. We're almost there, though. Is that not true? You're just waiting for that's the next one, right? But our actions certainly reveal that desire. Married for life, hmm, sounds good, but let's not get carried away. It's just not very practical. One final comment here before we begin. The elders met, of course, in preparation or this this marriage sermon, and then others down the road, we may do. And one thing all of us noted, that as much as people point to the so-called exception clauses, if you were to survey divorces in the church over the past 50 years, so just think with me, whatever we want to say about that, if you were just to survey actual divorces that happened, you'd be hard-pressed to find ones that actually even fit that criteria. Is that not true? We can say all we want about wanting to get out, You just can't find it. No, practice, though, is not proof of a doctrine. So that may be one thing, evidence of a low view. The word of God is what we turn to. Such we turn to the principle, to the prescription that we'll see that resounds in God's word. This morning, we're really piggybacking off of yesterday. That's what we're doing. We looked at Ephesians 5, if you were here yesterday, remember that. to see the picture and the symbol? of that marriage, a picture, remember what we looked at yesterday, the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the picture as Tyler and Veda stood here, right, representing in portrait the gospel, a portrait of Christ and his bride, the church. Today we want to dig into that institution itself. That's what we're going to do today, its origin and its composition. This morning we'll seek to clarify and answer this question. This is our salient question this morning. What is marriage? What is it? So let's begin and let's look at marriage's first domain. Marriage's membership. Turn to Genesis one. Marriage, marriage's membership. So helpful for us as we study these doctrines in God's Word to go to the beginning. And we must do that over and over again. And here, as we begin this morning, we're going to look at Genesis one and these questions. Who makes up marriage? What are the parties? Well, what does God say? What does God say? Look at verse 27. Let's just key right in there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Beloved, we're looking at foundations here. And in Genesis 1, we see what foundation? Look at the verse. That humanity is made in God's image and only of two types. Do you see that? Crystal clear. Male and female, right? These are foundations here. The Bible, I want you to look at verse 27, the origin text. The Bible does not say non-binary, he made them. It doesn't say fluid, he made them. It doesn't say transgender, he made them. Does it say that? It does not say that. It doesn't say he created human beings to choose their own gender. It absolutely does not say that. No, again, the word of God is clear. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, binary, one or the other, without confusion. As black and white as your eyes see it on the page, so it is true. Is that not true? And by the way, how do we know God does not confuse us with gender? You hear a lot of gender confusion today. How can you be guaranteed right now that God does not confuse us with gender? Let's make this straightforward. How do you know? He gave us bodies, right? Knit together in our mother's womb. Not confused globs of flesh, are they? Bodies with parts that make gender clear. Our sons were born and they came out of the womb. Do you know what the nurse said, lo and behold? Could you believe this? Jason, you have a son. Today, one would be shocked at that, and they say, why didn't the nurse say, well, Jason, you're just going to have to wait to see what those two want to be? What's going on? What is going on? It is crystal clear. And this reminds us that if anyone, here it is, beloved, focus with me. If anyone's going to define the terms, not only for marriage, but for the identity and relationship of marriage members, it's who? The one who created them. Do we agree on that? The one who created them. Yes, God and God alone defines marriage membership. Now, this is the beginning, Genesis, the Old Testament, of course. you would say, well, what about Jesus? What about the New Testament? Turn to Mark 10. What about Jesus? That's fine, but that's antiquated. That's the Old Testament. Let's, let's get into the New. Mark 10. You just read these first eight verses. Listen to them. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered him again and again as he was custom. Look, what's he going to do here? He taught them. So this is teaching from Jesus. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, listen to his answer, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment or this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, note the contrast. That's what Moses did. Jesus says, let me teach you from the beginning. God made them what? Male and female. And then the therefore, therefore, because he made them male and female, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Look at that. As he teaches, he corrects the error of the day. And to do that, what does Jesus do? He does this often. He goes back to the beginning. In fact, Paul does the same thing, right? In 1 Timothy, he goes back to the beginning. That's why we continue here at Westmount to go back to the beginning, like Jesus, like Paul. Turn left, go back to the beginning. That's what Jesus says. He points them, and he points us back to creation and says what? Verse 6, look at it. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In other words, this is how Creator designed it. Male and female. This is how it's been from the beginning. In other words, the creation of male and female is not just the heart of humanity, but the fact that God made them male and female is the foundation of marriage. That's the point. Nothing changes with Jesus. And note when Jesus corrects error, he heads to Genesis. So let's head back there now. Jesus points us there, and we go back to Genesis 1. And look at, listen to Genesis 1.27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So clear. But we're not done in Genesis 1 yet. One last item to note in Genesis 1. Look at the very next verse, verse 28. It says what? And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Stop there, lots there, but let's just key in here. Be fruitful and multiply. That's a command, is it not? to the first humanity. Like physical anatomy, more clarity from God's design. Do you see that? This is clear, right? Only one male and one female together produce another humanity. Is that not true? That's the only way. We can't rig it any other way. This sets the stage for what we're going to see in a moment in Genesis 2. God created male and female, and only one of each produce offspring. That's a huge clue, right? That's a huge clue. There's nothing unclear about it. The only issue, listen, the only issue in this text is how we receive it. Is that not true? That's the only issue is how we receive it. Next, we can move on now. Marriage membership, marriage's mandate. Genesis 2, marriage's mandate. We've seen that humanity is created by God of two types. And each type is needed to be fruitful and multiply. But if that was all there was, listen, if we stopped at Genesis 1 and we're looking at the foundations of human flourishing and marital flourishing, if that's all there was, Any male and any female could get together, right? One could imagine someone say, well, yeah, giddy up. Any male, any female, let's just get the human race going, right? I mean, any time as more humans are desired, let's just get a male and a female together. And that sounds crazy, but listen, I think a lot of people endorse that, don't they? Sadly, more and more today, they endorse that. Take off all the parameters, take off all the shackles. Let's do it. Well, God's word does not stop at Genesis 1. Let's continue reading into Genesis 2. And for this, we'll start in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh west mount what do you see there what do you see first you see design roles for a man and a woman do you see that look at verse 15 there's a role for the man man is made to what work and to keep very clear is it not that's what he was made to do verse 18 the creation of woman is what designed as a helper that's fit for the man so clear Let's pause now in light of comments around us. This is complement, not egality. This is role, not hierarchy. And by the way, this is God's way, right? You see that? This is God's way. And it is also clear, not confusing. By the way, this needs to be mentioned. This is why families flourished in tough times in history. Did you know that? This is why they flourished. Because they followed this design. This is not just neat pioneer prairie vignettes. This is life flourishing. The man, the husband working, and the woman, the wife helping. Very simple. Less triumph of the human spirit. Less against all odds. Listen, they lived God's way. And guess what? God's way works every time. We'll have more to say on God's way later this summer. It's so important. It's become so important the day that we're in. Today, generally, as a society, we don't live God's way. We like to, but we don't. Paraphrase saw the account of a martyr the other day, and I was just reminded how we could insert anything into that particular. Well, one that suffered anyway, a missionary that suffered said this. And I'll paraphrase to put it into this context. There are those that believe. There are those that live God's way, truly, and then there's those who believe that they live God's way. Does that make sense? Let's not be in the second category, okay? Where we believe we do, but we really don't. And why do we say that? Because we flatten, we reject And we live our way. And of course, here's the question. This is the question that begs self-examination. How are we doing in the great human struggle? And one exhibit is marriage. How are we doing there? How are we doing? Second, what do we see here? We see that man is, I love this. Men, husbands, look at this with me. Hear it with me. We see that man is satisfied and complete with his wife. Men, are you with me? Satisfied and complete with his wife. So good. He doesn't say, you know what, I need Yahweh, I need another me. He doesn't say, Yahweh, you know what, I need another man. Because this is a lot of muscular work, and I need another man. God says, I'm going to make a helper fit for you. Thank God he's defining the terms, right? Verse 23, if we didn't hear it before, then the man said what? This at last, that satisfaction, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So clear. Now we, of course, need other humans. Don't miss the point today. We need other humans, right? Two are better than one, right? Ecclesiastes and so on. We need others, but that's not the point here. Today, society thinks marriage can sustain even when creatures redefine the terms. But listen, logic and nature alone reveal that it won't work that way. If one man wants to do life with another man, here is the reality. They can't produce another man. A married couple thus cannot fill the mandate that we read earlier in Genesis 1.28. We keep it biblical and logical. And my question to you is this. In light of God's clear command and design, I ask you this morning, would God endorse such procreation futility, not to mention confusion? Do you know of a God who is going to endorse confusion, not to mention futility? Do you know such a God? No, you don't, because it doesn't exist. Marriage has specific membership, and marriage has a specific mandate. And that brings us to our third observation in this passage. And it's the, the bigger one. It's found in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Westmount, what is marriage? Well, here in Scripture, in this verse, is your definition. This is your definition of marriage. Genesis 2.24 is the what is marriage. The three, look at the verse, three structural pillars of marital union found right here. The tripod that uphold marriage, right here. Let us really focus in on verse 24 now and all its definitional clarity. First, number one, a man shall leave his father and mother. Marriage is leaving. That's pillar number one. Marriage is leaving. This is the first and foremost act of marriage. There's no union without this, beloved. This is the step where one leaves the family that has to this point defined him. Westmount, this leave is very explicit here. See that word leave? Look at it in verse 24. In the original, it means this, to abandon, to depart from, to forsake. It's a sharp word. I want you to note that therefore in verse 24, and the truth it points back to, The fact in verse 22 stated that a partner has been made. Man will not be alone. And because God has made a way for a new family, man must leave his old one. Do you see that? Because God has made a way for his new family, man must leave his old one. Man must let go of his parents, his family, the relationship that has defined him. Man must leave. Woman must leave. Spouses, you must leave your parents. To be united to your husband or wife. Now, listen, leave, this is where it gets tough. Leave is not just living elsewhere, a change of address. It's not that. Leaving is mental. Leaving is where man thinks independently of mom. And he's not filtering every decision into what would mom think, what would mom think. Leaving is emotional, where woman doesn't find security in dad anymore, but she finds security in her husband. And leaving is spiritual, where man and woman leave physically, but here it is, they don't leave completely. More on that in a moment. They leave physically, but it's not a complete leaving, or it's you, right, into eternity. No, Thus leave does not mean you cut parents off or ignore them, unless it's a special occasion. Did you phone mom for Mother's Day? Did you phone dad for Father's Day? Oh, and it's Christmas or Easter. Spouses leave their parents, but they continue to honor and respect them. It's one of the biggest questions we still get here at West Mountain. Older adults, middle-aged, of all kinds, how do I honor my parents now that I'm out of the house? It's a big question. It's a great question. One thing that's recognized as you keep asking that question is Exodus twenty twelve? It says, honor your father and mother. It's repeated in Ephesians 6 two. Honor your father and mother. And here it is. It's a lifetime of honoring. But listen, not just when you share a roof. You can honor someone. And you don't have to share a roof without unconditional obedience. That's not what honoring means. As such spouses, leave is always in the context of parental honor. Does that make sense? Leaving is always in the context of honoring your parents. Leave means... Here it is, to be a little more specific. Leave means the context of relationship with dad and mom has changed. So you no longer must obey dad and mom, no matter what. But what does it change to? You respectfully seek their wisdom. You've been looking at homes, young couple, right? And you just pick up the phone. Dad, what do you think about this? Right? You're feeling down, mom. You just had that first child. You pick up the phone. Mom, help me out here. What does this look like? That's what we're talking about. Leave means decisions are now made in the context of your new household. You seek wisdom. Proverbs talks about wisdom in many counselors. But decisions are made in the context of your new household and authority. Leave means, as we said yesterday, a son and a daughter come out from under their parents' authority. They're no longer bound to them. Now that's leave. That's one. But marriage is more than leaving. The second pillar, look at verse 24, is this and hold fast to his wife. Marriage is leaving, marriage is cleaving. The idea with that word there is separation with the purpose of holding fast to something or someone else. And not just holding fast to anyone else that isn't one's parents. No, the text is clear. Look again at verse 24. The man leaves parents to hold fast to who, specifically? His wife. His wife. Leaving, of course, happens all the time. Young adults, singles, they leave dad and mom regularly. But holding fast is what must happen if marriage is happening. You see that? And let's make sure we grab the full definition and picture here in marriage. Hold fast there means to stick or cling tight. Think of a fusion with nothing in between that fusion. It's the same word, by the way, used in Ruth 1.14. Do you remember that account where it says, Ruth clung to Naomi. So what does that mean to cling to? Let, let me read it for you. This is what it means. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Note that. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. This is, this is what cleaving and holding fast is. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Even more, Ruth, what's more, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if, note this, anything but what? Death parts me from you. That's holding fast. That, that's the same idea. That's what it means to hold fast to one's wife. This is the pillar of marriage we saw demonstrated yesterday, publicly, by the way, publicly. Father coming down the aisle, giving the bride, she leaves father, right? She moves from dad as bridegroom comes down, exchange is made, and she holds fast right beside her husband. They exchange covenant vows, and then they walk out together as one. That's what we saw. And not just together for a season, or until times get tough, or until they're done with each other, of course. No, they walk down that aisle and remain fused together for the rest of their life. That's holding fast, as we saw yesterday. In a biblical marriage, the two parties recognize they're sinful beings. Here's for sure what lay behind what we saw yesterday as well, too. They recognize that they are prone sinful human beings. This is why they want to do it in a particular way. So they gather before God and before many witnesses. They're very intentional about doing that with their local church family. Why? It was as if they would say this to us. And let me speak these words to you on their behalf. Make sure we never forget what we did here. You come alongside us, church family, and make sure we never, ever forget what we covenanted this day. Westmount, you make sure we never try to get out of it. Oh, we will try. We will squirm. Reminds me, for those Narnia fans, of Prince Rillian in the silver chair. There will come a time when I want to get out of it, and you don't do that. Don't let us leave this marriage. Don't let us forsake this union. Ever. Hold us accountable to holding fast to each other. Young man and young lady were on order yesterday. On record as saying, hold us accountable. Holding fast naturally then means there are no conditions. Again, and this, by the way, is the understanding that's always been. We talked about 1900. Even after 1900, they still said this. I know you recognize this. I take you to be my wedded husband, my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till what? Death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge thee my faith and pledge myself to you. They still say that today. Did you know that? Those are strong words, aren't they? Those are God's words. And it's what it means to hold fast, till death do us part, nothing else. After the leaving, the holding fast, the final pillar then in verse 24, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is leaving, marriage is cleaving, and marriage is one flesh. There it is. This is the physical act, often referred to as the consummation. After leaving happens, after holding fast is pledged, then the two become one flesh. This is indeed the consummation of marriage. This is the sexual union The physical binding, the intercourse, and the intimacy of a husband and wife. Bringing their bodies together actually is one flesh. That's exactly what it is. Of course, sexual intercourse on its own is not marriage, right? We know that from the first two points. On its own, it's not. This is a tripod. But that said, listen, sexual intercourse does result in a one flesh bond, right? And don't take my word for it. Let's consider the word of God. This is exactly Paul's point. This is his argument in 1 Corinthians 6. I believe you know this passage as well. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Listen to his argument. Or do you not know, this is to the Corinthians, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then what does Paul do? He goes back where? To Genesis, For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Friends, every time a man and a woman lay together, there is a one flesh event. I want to say that again. Every single time a man and a woman lay together, there's a one flesh event. And I hope you're not sitting there saying, well, at least that's not pornography. Every time you look at pornography, you're saying, I want to do that. So you might as well be doing that. Every single time. Every moment. One flesh, one flesh, one flesh. Every time. And we see here a one flesh union with spiritual consequences. And hear me, beloved, on this sober moment that we need. In this culture, as Gary mentioned, the ungodliness around us today. This fact alone explains so much of the sexual disaster that we're swimming in. Elementary school kids, that's right. Elementary school kids being taught now to be sexually adventurous. High school kids being given condoms and STD vaccines in the name of responsibility. Unmarried people sleep with other unmarried people, or married if the opportunity is there and the flesh is right. Married people lie with others outside the marriage bed, often repeatedly, under a guise of, I couldn't help it. Prostitution, pornography, promiscuity, it goes on and on and on today. All that said, and we must wrap this middle point with this, One flesh encounters are not themselves marriage, just as leaving or holding fast on their own are not marriage. Let's be clear here. It's all three together. Leave, cleave, and one flesh all together make up the marriage mandate today. It's like buying a home, right? What do you need to buy a home? You need a written agreement, right? You need money, and you need keys. Is that not true? Those three together get you the home. Can you do one of those things on its own? Yes. Does it have full force and impact and consequence? Sure. And how confusing is it if you had one of those things, right? But the whole thing wasn't true. Keys to a house that wasn't yours. A written agreement to a house that wasn't yours. It's the same with marriage. It causes confusion. You can do any one of those things, beloved, but you need the other two things to make it full and consummated and official. Same as marriage. The sum of all that we see there in Genesis 2.24. Mandate of marriage is that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is holy matrimony. We have two minutes left, and it's enough to cover the last point because you cannot teach on marriage without mentioning this. Right? We know that books and Hollywood would end there, and maybe... Give a yes, yes to some of those things. Once it's romantic, yes, 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 right? Third, marriage is menace. Marriage is menace. This is clear and easy, right? And why is marriage so hard, it seems? This is clear, and you say, why is marriage so hard, spouses? You felt that at times. Genesis 3, verse 16, of course, you know the context of this curse. Let me just read it point particularly to the woman, where God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Let's just key in for a moment on that. Your desire will be for your husband. This is not sexual. In context, this is the same desire Eve had to be like God here. Of course, that And after the curse, the husband now look at verse 13. 16 he shall rule over you what's missing there is love right the command we see in the new testament the menace to marriage marriage is beautiful in and of itself but the menace to marriage is this sin that's it not one's past not one's neighborhood not one's race not one's gender the menace to marriage, and the only thing that can threaten marriage is sin. That's it. There's nothing else. Sin. Sin is why spouses fail to leave their parents. Sin is why spouses fail to hold fast to each other. Sin is why married men and women seek one flesh outside marriage. Sin has always been and will always be the threat to the marriage union. Sin is marriage's menace. Sin and sin alone. And sin is what has us, and those of old, looking for loopholes. we were to continue in Mark 10, we would have Jesus close this account with this. In verse 9, not only did he go back to Genesis, he said this, What therefore God has joined together, let not man what? Separate. Separate. There's nothing confusing about that statement. It tells us that man can separate the marriage union, but he should not. Do you see that? More, man can separate the marriage union, but he's commanded not to. And not only are we commanded not to separate the marriage union, but we see in the Old Testament, what did we read portions of this morning? Genesis, Hosea, and of course the New Testament, that marriage is binding for life. Remember Romans 7. Let's not forget Romans in the deep heart of the summer, Romans 7, 1 to 3, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord, Paul says. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. The familiar, the forgotten. And what about God's marriage? Are we, the church, are we God's people part of a marriage with God? Revelation nineteen sixty eight: This is what is to come. And again, we read this this morning. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. Not the remarriage. The marriage of the Lamb is come. Once a bride, always a bride, right? Very clear. From beginning to end, Lamb is all the glory. We sin, yes, but it does not warrant separation in our marriage to God. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? That your sin doesn't void your marriage to God? Are you thankful for that? Your sin doesn't void your marriage to God. Praise God. And listen, if sin separated unions, indeed, what would we say together? Who could be married, right? Spouses, I know you're with me. Who could be married if sin separated unions? But by the grace of God, sinful humans like us can be married. And even more, we can have unions for a lifetime. Father, we thank you for that truth, that we can indeed be married by your grace and have a bond that we cannot keep, but we can in you. So Lord, help us to do that. We beg and we pray as we leave this place. In Christ's name, amen.